Episode 71, Finding Your Way After Rock Bottom with New York Times bestselling author Neil Donald Walsh. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I used my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you. So you can live Life Amplified. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know one of the things I commit to each week is taking high-level personal growth concepts and really boiling and distilling it down into practical, actionable advice that will move you forward and help you create an amplified career in life. Although this week, we're going to have a much higher level conversation. In his new book, The Essential Path, Neil Donald Walsh writes, Sooner or later, every thinking person comes around again to this question. Is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand about ourselves, about life, and yes, about God, the understanding of which would change everything? We're tackling some of life's big questions this week, and I enlisted the help of one of the best gurus and guides I could find. Neil Donald Walsh is an author and speaker who has written 29 books, including the best-selling series Conversations with God. And as you're going to learn today, Neil's story is nothing short of incredible. After a nearly fatal car accident almost took his life, Neil found himself out of money, out of a job, out of a relationship, and living on the streets. He's going to talk about that journey, how he bounced back to where he is right now, and he's going to share how his deepest pain helped him start a conversation with God, the wisdom of which he has shared with one million readers around the world. He's also going to talk to us about his new book, The Essential Path, which takes a look at the current state of the world, the political climate, and humanity. Some of the things we're going to be talking about in this episode are how to use the current circumstances of your life as a way to move forward into a new and better way of thinking. He's going to share the number one way we can truly get our needs met. It's not what you think it is. He'll talk about how our relationship with God and religion can change over time. He'll share the questions to ask yourself when you're ready for a change. He's also going to talk about the biggest problem facing the world today and how most of us don't even know what it is. Plus, we're going to do a deep dive on the increasing feeling of alienation and separation that we're experiencing in the world today. It's a really meaningful, beautiful conversation. I hope it inspires you. And if you do love it, be sure to screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram or Twitter. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag Neil at Neil Donald Walsh. Get ready to learn about life's essential path with New York Times bestselling author Neil Donald Walsh. Neil Donald Walsh, welcome to Life Amplified, sir. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So excited to talk about your new book, The Essential Path. We're going to be doing that coming up here in this episode. But, you know, one of the big themes of this podcast is hearing from people who discovered their life purpose and, in many instances, 
went through some amount of adversity or some pain in their life that led them to discovering their purpose. And if anybody's followed your work or they're familiar with uh, your Conversations with God book, that's certainly a big component of your life. Could you tell us a little bit about your career? You had uh, several successful mini careers over the span of two or three decades where you were doing well but you weren't fulfilled. And talk about how things eventually came crashing down and led you to really start asking some of life's deeper questions. Well, you've just you've just uh, done it. You've just described it. So that's the end of that. <laughs> really simply, I was in broadcasting. I was in newspaper work. I had worked for some major uh, governmental organizations and including a school, major school system. I was just always dabbling in the communications arts at one level or another. But somewhere around the age of 49 or 48, I got to a point where nothing in my life was working anymore. My career had reached a dead end. I had a terrific automobile accident in which I broke my neck, actually. I was quite lucky to survive. Doctors were telling me that, hey, you know what? When people suffer a broken neck, they often die on the spot. Uh, or they wind up paralyzed for life because you were talking about spinal cord injury uh, of a major type. And I didn't have a simple hairline fracture of my neck. I had a three-quarter inch avulsion fracture of the seventh cervical vertebrae posteriorly. In other words, you could take a pencil and push it right through the, the, the space where my neck cracked. So the doctors looked at me and said, you know, you, by all rights, shouldn't even be here. Uh, and uh, But I escaped death in that moment. And I also escaped paralysis, just one of those things where it was in just the right spot where I just had limited range of motion, but not paralysis. That threw me out of work. I was in rehab for almost two years. I wore a Philadelphia collar, what they call a Philadelphia collar, for two years, and I couldn't do very much. Eventually, I ran out of savings, ran out of money, ran out of government benefits, and and before I knew it, I wound up living on the street. I was literally, I had nowhere to go. I was walking uh, the streets and begging for coins from people, and I was what is known as a street person in America for a year of my life. And not for a couple of rough weeks or a couple of rough months, but for an entire year, two weeks shy of one year to be precise. And and during that uh, 50 weeks, I learned a lot about who I am, about life, about how everything works. But when I got then I got back into the workforce. I wound up finding a job in broadcasting, as it happened. And as a weekend, I, there was a local station looking for a weekend fill-in. I walked in there with like 25 years' experience in broadcasting. So, of course, they hired me immediately. They couldn't believe I, I would take a weekend job. But I explained my situation, and they said, okay, you're hired. So there I was back in broadcasting. Eventually, I became the program director of that radio station in just a few months because their program director left to go to a bigger market and they didn't have anybody on staff with my kind of experience. So they actually moved me into management within about three months. That's when I realized the utter vacuousness of my life. Nothing that I was doing really made any sense to my soul. I thought, oh my gosh, here I am back again in the rat race. And, and I work in my 12, 14-hour days. And the only problem with a rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. So I didn't figure that that made any sense to my soul. I wanted desperately to do something that resonated with me at a much higher level. And so I had found a way to survive again, but survival was no longer the issue for me. I thought there's got to be more. There's got to be more to life than survival. And I woke up one night in a very angry fit of temper, and I was just walking around the house. I wound up plopping down on the couch. So I was sitting on the couch, really furious about how life is treating me after all I had gone through and with all that. And I 
was thinking things like, you know, with all the talent that I have, all that I've been able to do, how has it come to this? And surely there must be more to life than what I'm now experiencing. And I'm approaching my 50th birthday. After a half century on the planet, there should be something that I'm aware of that, that you know, the knowing of which would change everything. So I began writing a very angry letter. Actually, I found a yellow legal pad in the coffee table in front of me. I, I picked it up and began writing a, a letter to God, believe it or not. I was just nothing better on my mind. It's 4.30 in the morning, and I was going, okay, God, you know, I would really like some answers to some fundamental questions. What does it take to make life work? And what have I done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? And finally, you know what? Just tell me the rules. I swear I'll play. Just tell me the rules. Give me the rule book. And after you give me the rules, don't change them, because I noticed that all the rules in life were changing all around me. And uh, that's when I really began having my conversation with God, what I called a conversation with God, because I, I actually heard what I want to call the voice of God. I heard a voice that was not my voice really talking directly to me and giving me answers to all the questions I had asked and to questions I didn't even think of. I was just filled with like a download, if you please, of all this information. So I began writing on the yellow legal pad because I didn't want to forget. I didn't want to forget what was, how would I put this coming to me in that moment. So I began writing, 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 pages after pages after pages. And finally, what I was receiving in this way was bringing up other questions for me. So I found myself asking other questions. Well, wait a minute, what about this? Well, how about that? I can't believe this. What are you trying to tell me? And I, be, I found myself really in an on-paper dialogue, just question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. I still didn't really realize what was happening, but I was getting answers to every question that I asked. By the way, I should tell you at this point that I never imagined in a million years that anyone else would ever see this uh, so-called uh, on-paper conversation. It was a very private, like journaling, like journaling yeah. in one's diary. It didn't occur to me that anyone would ever read this. And then this process continued for several weeks. I mean, every morning I'd wake up roughly the same time, interestingly enough. And I would awaken, and there I was. I'd rush back to the yellow legal pad, and I continued this dialogue that I was having, a dialogue with myself, it felt like, or a dialogue with a part of me that I didn't really was knew existed that I eventually identified as what some people call God, the source of wisdom and clarity that resides within all of us. In fact, I was told by this voice inside of me, I talk to everyone all the time. It's not a question of to whom do I talk. The question is, who's listening? So I, I identify this voice in my, in my experience as the voice of God that resides within every human being and with every sentient being in the universe. And at one point, how it turned into a book is interesting. At one point, I was told in this dialogue, you will make of this a book. Hmm. And I thought, I thought to myself, yes, of course. <laughs> There's not a publisher on the planet who's going to take, take somebody's handwritten notes and tell his staff, hey, stop the presses. This guy's talking to God. Yeah. <laughs> It didn't even occur to me, you know, but in fact, I sent, I had the handwritten notes uh, typed out by a stenographer. Who I, I sent it to a publisher. He uh, loved the material. The material was declined by five publishers, I should tell you, before it got to this particular gentleman, but he loved it and he decided to publish it immediately. Well, the rest is, as they say, publishing history. Yeah. The book went on to sell over a million copies, translated into um, 37 languages. Uh, and has become a global uh, spiritual literary phenomena. 
You know, there's two things that really stand out to me. And by the way, just such an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Two things that stood out to me. Number one, experiencing the highs of being very successful in your career as a younger man, going through what we would call the divine storm of an accident and a broken neck and the rehab and the pain and eventually losing everything and living on the street to this redemption of being able to walk back into your old career within a few months and not just having a job, but being in management. I mean, that's a remarkable story. And yet, within a few months of that, even after what I'm sure was a fair amount of despair and angst and anxiety about your living situation, within a few months, you still found yourself unfulfilled again. You know, so many of us think that that happiness is going to happen when we make more money, when we get the next job, when all of our needs are met, but yet there was still this yearning within you even having experienced life on the streets to grow and become more. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I realized, as I mentioned earlier, the utter vacuousness of yeah. life. That is, I got back into the workforce, as you described, and there I was, and you know, everything was okay again, more or less. I wasn't making a million dollars, but I was surviving and doing, doing okay. But I realized I woke up many mornings thinking, really, is this it? I mean, is this really it? God forbid, am I going to wind up being a 65-year-old disc jockey? And then I'm going to retire at 65, one presumes, and maybe live on my Social Security. And I mean, I didn't have a relationship. It, it wasn't just that I had the car accident, the automobile accident. I, I also had lost my relationship during that same period of time. A lot of other things were going on in my life that weren't very happiness-producing as well. So my whole life was really falling apart. And when I got it back together to directly address the point you're making, when I began to pull things back together, you know, and I had a little relationship going again, I had a nice little lady friend, a very sweet relationship, and I had my job and, and things were going well again. I woke up one morning and I thought, wait a minute, I mean, really, is this it? And, and is this all there is? It's just about the one but the most toys at the end wins? And I, and I just had a philosophical moment where my heart broke at the vacuousness of it, at the emptiness of it. I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. There's got to be more. There's got to be more to this. But what does it take? What does it take to make life work? And somebody tell me the rules. Those are real, real questions that I had. The most important question, what am I doing here? What is, I mean, what is the point of all of this? I, and I had a memory that really stoked a lot of this in me. Memory was, was the last time I visited my father. My father was 83 years old at the time, and I was uh, uh, flew to Milwaukee, where where he lived and where I grew up, and to visit him uh, at one time in my life. It was three or four years before the time we're now talking about, and I went to visit him for uh, for Thanksgiving, actually, and uh, it was the last time I saw him alive. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that at the time. He died about two months afterward while I was away. So we were talking in his sunroom. He looked at me at one point and said, out of the blue, he was very quiet. Old old gentlemen are often very, very quiet. I spent the day with him and he didn't say 25 words to me. We just sat there being with each other. And that was okay with me. I went to visit him, whatever he wanted to say. But at one point out of the blue, he looked at me and he said, I don't understand any of it. And I said to him, what? I'm sorry, what? What did you say, Dad? He said, you heard me. I said, I don't understand any of it. And I remember thinking at that point, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what must it be like at 83 to not understand any of it? What was it about? What was the point? Where's it going from here? What's happening next, if anything? You know, you don't have any understanding of any of it, just to sit there in that place 
I began to, to, to talk with him about what I thought about some of the things. This is long before I, I ever had the conversations with God experience, but I was just sh- sharing with him my, you know, my perspective. What am I, about 45 years old at this time? And, you know, and, and I had some philosophical points of view. He looked at me and he looked at me and he said, oh, bananas. And he didn't believe a word of it. So I realized then when I left his home, I, I felt so sad for him and sad for me because I had to realize that I wasn't doing any better than he was. I thought I had some ideas, some thoughts, but I didn't understand any more than he understood. And I thought, God, I don't want to, I don't want to get to 83 and not have any understanding of anything at all. Yeah. That kind of started me on this feeling of surely there must be more going on here, more than meets the eye. And, and then as it happened, I happened to catch a Shakespeare show, a play of Shakespeare's in the town in which I live. Uh, I was enjoying the evening. And at one point, the one of the characters said to another character, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I never, never forgot that line. It struck me like an arrow right in my heart. As I walked out of the theater, I was repeating the line to myself. I think the rest of the play didn't matter to me, but that line just jumped out at me and it, it has stayed with me ever since. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. You know, I think we all go through, you know, I always call it, to use the analogy from the movie Forrest Gump, I feel like we all go through our Lieutenant Dan moment where he's out there on the ship and it's the middle of a storm and, you know, the ship might capsize and and Lieutenant Dan's just out there, all right, God, it's me and you, let's go right now. And we all sort of have that crisis moment, but it sounds like that night, uh, that transformative night when you started writing on the legal pad, I'm curious, what was your relationship to the idea of God, heaven, spirituality before that night versus what it's come to be now? What is it that you used to believe about well, God? Well, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family. I, I was convinced I would wind up being a Roman Catholic priest. At the age of 12, I was clear about that. At the age of 13, I was clear about that. And at the age of 14, I was still pretty clear about that. And then I saw my first Playboy centerfold, and I remember that I changed my mind quickly. <laughs> about wanting to be a priest, I nevertheless carried forward into my life a deep interest in this essence, this being that people called God all around, everybody all around me in my Catholic upbringing talked about God, this God, that God was an altar boy. I mean, I was very, very uh, religious person, you know, for for a young child. And, and as I grew into my teenage years and then toward uh, adulthood, I still held the notion that there was something in the universe larger than me that, that I chose to call God. My idea of God was that it had uh, thoughts, that, that it had pro- uh, proclivities, desires, if you please, if not demands and commandments that I needed to follow. And that if I broke those commandments, I would be punished. And, and depending on how huge my offense was, certain offenses would send me straight to hell. By the way, those weren't always necessarily huge offenses. Missing mass on Sunday without any legitimate reason, like taking care of a a sick person or needing to work. But if I just chose not to go and didn't confess it before I died, I would go straight to hell. I was told this by the church. I began to take a a deep interest in another kind of God. I thought, that can't be true. That can't be true. God certainly wouldn't punish you with everlasting damnation because you chose not to go to Mass. His ego can't be so easily wounded 
that, 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 that he would send, you know, Neil, Neil Donald Walsh to, to hell for all eternity because I missed Mass last Sunday. So I began to realize that I was caught up in an understanding of God that I couldn't believe in. And, and that set me on a course of exploration in my life. I never took any formal education in that area, but I, I began thinking about God a lot. Who is it and how does it work and what does it really want and what does it really need and what is it really commanding? And that took me on a search through just an informal, I didn't do this in any formal way, but informally looking at Judaism and all the other forms of Christianity, you know, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, and the Presbyterian Church. Every I looked at Buddhism. I looked at every belief system that, that you could think of trying to find my way to a larger understanding of this thing that we call God. And I wasn't getting there, and then I finally I gave the whole thing up. Somewhere around 45 or so, I just said, okay, you know, literally, ironically, the hell with it. I'm done. And I, I got to the place that my father was. I don't understand any of it. Somebody tell me what's going on. Uh, and then I had my, my interesting episode with losing my job and breaking my neck in a car accident, losing my relationship, all within the same three-month period. So I was out of work, out of a relationship, and I almost died in that car accident. So I thought, okay, all right. Obviously, there's something here that I don't understand, the understanding of which would change everything. Mm. Somebody tell me what it is. And that led me to take out that pen and start writing my angry letter to God on a piece of paper. You know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I, in a sense, my feeling was, okay, you've been uh, very much like Tom Hanks. You've been fooling around with me enough. You know, now it's for you and me. This conversation ties so beautifully into one of the key themes that you talk about in The Essential Path, because you said that there is basically one big problem that is facing humanity today. And, you know, we're going to get to that answer in a second. But when I think about everything that you've shared, you know, most of us grew up with this understanding of the God of our childhood, the very Old Testament God that's going to smite you for any wrongdoing and is keeping a personal journal of of every offense, big and small, that Dan and Neil have made over the course of our life. Well, wait, 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 wait don't compare me to you. I, I would say <laughs> Separate chapters, but, you know, same journal. But he's, okay. he's taking inventory, and that's it. We're somehow imperfect. We are, you know, we're banished the way Adam and Eve were out of the Garden of Eden because, and it creates that sense of being separate originally from our source, doesn't it? Like for whatever this higher power is you believe in, you know, this is where we hear a lot about Catholic guilt. I mean, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian faith, but there was a lot of those same things where I was always terrified as a child of the rapture, thinking that somehow... You know, I was going to be left with the plague of locusts. But isn't that really the source of that separation that you talk about here in this book? Yes. Let's talk more about that then. So let's dive deeper into some of the teachings you have here in The Essential Path. Because you say the number one problem facing humanity today is... is that no one understands what the number one problem is. <laughs> the biggest problem in the world today is that very, very few people understand what the biggest problem in the world today is. We see the outfall, we see the impact, we see the effect of the biggest problem, but we don't understand what is causing the effect. The effect, I can put in one word, alienation. Mm. I have never seen 
our species so alienated from each other as I'm seeing today. Alienated along political lines, along economic lines, along racial lines, along spiritual lines, along social lines. I mean, there's alienation everywhere. And we have this, we suddenly, we've created this us against them mentality. We have fallen into an us against them environment, a world of us against them. And it's always those others who are creating the problems that we are experiencing. If it weren't for those others, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. It's it's those others, those unwanted immigrants, uninformed students, those angry women, those gays, whoever it is that's doing it to us, they're the ones, they're the problem. And, it, it, and suddenly we are alienated at a time when we need to pull together more than ever before in human history. We're actually separating ourselves from everyone else and we're not standing together we're standing apart and we're throwing darts at each other and, and we even have leaders of nations bullying others and calling them names and if you disagree you, you can't even disagree anymore with in, in the old days you could disagree with the, a leader a mayor or a senator or a congressman or, or somebody and these days you can't even do that you're not allowed to either submit to what they're saying, and if you disagree, keep quiet about it, or you will be bullied and name-called. When did we come to this? When those who proclaimed themselves to be our leaders are demonstrating behaviors that are tearing us apart, that we can't even allow them, ourselves to just disagree with them out loud, God forbid. So what's causing this? And the problem is that even our religious leaders, even our spiritual leaders, forget about our political leaders, I have not really pinned down yet the fundamental problem facing humanity that is creating this outcome of alienation. Now, and the book discusses that problem and identifies it. And it says essentially that the problem is the illusion of separation. We have bought into the illusion of separation. We have bought into the notion that you're over there and I'm over here and never the twain shall meet. That God, for that matter, those of us who believe in God, is up there, and we're down here, and we shall not meet either, except on Judgment Day, when God will decide whether we deserved to come back home or whether we are one of those others who does not get to be loved or forgiven by God. So we have created this illusion of separation by embracing what I call a separation theology that I've just described to you. And most of the world's religions, the vast majority of the world's religions, believe in a separation theology, as I've just described. God is up there, we're down here, and don't even begin to think that there could be any union between us, except not in the classic sense. And we can't even have a conversation with God. I've been criticized by churches everywhere saying, how could you dare say that you had a conversation with God? You can say you talk to God, you pray to God, but God doesn't talk back to you directly. That's blasphemy. Mm. That's heresy. That's apostasy. See, as Lily Tomlin, the great uh, comedian, said, when I tell people I talk to God every day, they say, oh, I'm very devout. When I tell people that God talks to me every day, they tell me that I'm crazy. So that, that's our point of view about the separation theology. Now, you know what? That wouldn't be so bad if it began and ended there. But it doesn't, because a separation theology inevitably produces a separation cosmology. That is a cosmological way of looking at all of life that says that everything is separate from everything else. And that wouldn't be so bad either if it began and ended there. But the problem with a separation cosmology is that it inevitably produces a separation psychology. That is a psychological holding that says I, as an individual, as a psyche, am separate from all other psyches. I'm one of 7.5 billion psyches on the 
the planet, but we're all separate from each other with our own agendas, our own needs, our own requirements, our own desires, and our own uh, needs for survival. And you know what? We could almost even live with that. But the problem with a separation psychology is that it inevitably produces a separation sociology. Entire societies that form themselves into groups. They call themselves political parties, they call themselves organizations, they call themselves nations, and all of a sudden it's a conglomeration of groups that create our overall global society, and all the groups have right on their side, of course, and all the other groups are wrong in what they're thinking. And at last we see that a separation sociology has produced a separation pathology, that is pathological behaviors of self-destruction evidence throughout human history and evidenced on this very day where we have leaders of nations not just some of the people on the street leaders of nations in the topmost positions antagonizing each other and bragging about who has the bigger missiles and who has to watch out for the other one because if you aren't careful we'll wipe you off the face of the earth and we have leaders talking to each other this way what have we come to out of this idea of separation theology cosmology psychology sociology, and ultimately pathology, pathological behaviors of self-destruction, creating animosity and alienation around the world. What is the solution? Embracing the ultimate reality, that in fact all things are one thing, that there is really only one thing and all things are part of the one thing there is, that what I do for you, I do for me, and what I fail to do for you, I fail to do for me, because in ultimate reality, there's only one of us, that we are simply different expressions of the single thing there is. By the way, this is not just a philosophical or theological point of view. Most of science now agrees, almost, almost every scientist is now clear that there is only one thing in existence expressing itself in multitudinous ways, but one essential essence or one essential energy that is arising in life in a wide variety of ways, including that way that we call sentience or sentient beings. Now, if we thought that we were all one, if I thought that I was one with everyone else, unified in that sense, it would never be possible for the human race to allow 653 children, children, to die of starvation on this planet every hour. It wouldn't be possible for us to live on a planet where we allow 1.5 billion people, I said 1.5 billion, to live their entire lives without one drop of pure water, or 1.7 billion people to live even today without electricity, or 2.5 billion people, that's almost a quarter of the human race, without indoor plumbing. In this, the year of our Lord 2019, are you kidding me? Now, we might say, people have said, oh, Neil, 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 we know these problems exist, but they are, after all, in the end, merely inconveniences. I mean, you know, so 2.5 billion people have to relieve themselves outside. It's an inconvenience, but it's not a tragedy, except that these, these inconveniences create hundreds of thousands of deaths, unnecessary deaths every year because of the health complications that arise from such conditions from no clean water, people drinking water out of the, the river, unpurified and not one drop of clean water in their entire lifetime, to use simply one example. We call ourselves a civilized civilization, but the civilization of civilization has not yet occurred, and it will not occur until we change our mind about each other, about who we are in relationship to each other, who we are in relationship to life, and who we are in relationship to, if you please, the notion that I call God.
I'm taking this all in, and and this is an amazing conversation and so inspiring. And, you know, I'm putting this into practical terms in the current political system. I mean, if you look, the bigger conversation that I think we're having globally, when you look at the political differences, are, are we here? Should we be looking out for the individual or should we be looking out for the collective? And sometimes the individual could just be a particular nation, you know, versus the collective. But that, but, but that is the collective. See, yeah. what we're missing, what we're missing is that is the collective. As, as soon as we expand our notion of things beyond my body, as soon as I just talk about my family, forget about my neighborhood or my community or my state or my nation. My God, as soon as I go beyond the boundaries of my own hands, I'm talking about the collective. I'm talking about all of us. One of the things like in my coaching practice, a lot of the times, you know, people will come to me and we talk about, hey, you have to take care of yourself. You have to practice some self-love, some self-compassion, self-care. Your needs have to be met so that you can show up in a bigger way to take care what of the What is other the fastest people. way to meet your needs? See, I teach as well. I teach workshops. I teach retreats. I do individual work with people all over the world. What is the fastest way to meet your imagined needs? Of course, in the book, Communion with God, we talk about need being the first illusions of humans. We have an illusion. Now, you're talking to a person who lived for a year on the street. Sure. So I know all about human needs. I know all about what it's like to not have a nickel to your name when you wake up. No way to even, okay, I've, at least I've got enough money to buy a couple of ha you know, French fries and a hamburger. No, not even that. Actually, no. Excuse me, not even that. What you have is the nickel that's in your pocket, and that's it. Get through the day. How am I going to eat today? How am I going to eat tomorrow? Unless I depend on the goodness and the openness of other people who see somehow in themselves a desire to help this guy on the street who's walking around not smelling all that nice, not looking all that good, hair down to the middle of his back because, are you kidding me? Getting a haircut is totally out of the question. Wearing the same clothes he's worn for the past three weeks because he only has one shirt and one pair of pants. And lucky to have that. So I know all about it. I know I don't know about it theoretically. I know about it sure. experientially. Sure. I've had an experience of it. This idea that we're all separate from each other and, and, the, and the notion that everything is separate from everything else. So the fastest way... For the us fastest way to meet our needs for us to meet our needs is to meet the needs of another, which is really what we talk about when we, you know, get clear on our purpose and bring it to life in the world. Being well, connected to, to yourself that, and helping it, others. It was told to us by all the great masters and each of the great spiritual masters have said it in their own way. One of the more memorable phrasing of it was simply this, as one master told us, do unto others as you would have it done unto you. Not because it's a nice thing to do, not because it's morally sweet or spiritually elevated, but because that's how the mechanism works. The mechanism of life works that way. As you do unto others, so will it be done unto you. So the fastest way to get anything in your experience that you want, greater abundance, greater happiness, more companionship, more joy, more peace, more serenity, whatever it is you would like in your life. Be the source of it in the life of another, because what flows through you sticks to you. So when I tell people how to take care of themselves, I say to them, the first thing I want you to do is go out and find 10 people who need or you, who you perceive to need the same things that you imagine that you need. 
And a person might say to me, well, I don't even have enough money. I, I, don't, I don't have enough money. I couldn't even help anybody. I say, that's not true. That's not true. Do you have a quarter in your pocket right now? The person, says, the person says, well, yeah, I've got a quarter. I don't have much more, but I do have a quarter. I say, great, go, down, go downtown and find someone on the street to whom that quarter means everything. Because if he can get a quarter from four people, he can actually buy a bag of French fries. You said that this is the natural mechanism of life, which I believe. So the question becomes is where have we lost sight of that and where has it become broken? Well, because we think that survival is the fundamental instinct. Where we've lost sight of it is through the teaching, one generation to the next and then to the next and then to the next, that survival is the fundamental instinct. And that what we need to do, you know, to be fair, we've all been told what we need to do. You know, we don't want to be mean people. We don't want to be cruel people, but we certainly have to pay attention to our own survival. So we've been, we've been convinced that survival is the fundamental instinct. But in fact, survival is not the basic instinct. Let me tell you something, my friend. If, it, if the average person is walking down the street and they turn to the left and they realize, oh my gosh, that building is on fire. That building is on fire. There are flames shooting out of the windows of that building. Does anybody see this? And then they run over there and they, they hear a baby crying. They hear a baby crying from the inside of the, of the building. Now, what does that person do? Turn around and run the other way? Say, I better call somebody. Get out their cell phone and, and call somebody? Or is their first instinct to run in and save sure. that baby? Of course it is. Yes. Nine out of ten people don't even think of survival at a moment like that. They run into the building to see what they can do to save that child. Because survival, it turns out, is not the fundamental instinct. The fundamental instinct is the impulse to express your divinity. The solution to what we're discussing here then is to consider every moment. This is what I tell my students. I want you to go through the rest of your life, and I want you to promise me that you will consider every moment a burning building moment, every moment a moment when it's all on the line, when you are deciding with everything that you think and say and do who you really are. What a privilege and an honor to spend this time with you today. I know you've given um, both myself and uh, every, all my listeners something that I think that we can take into this upcoming election cycle when there's going to be a lot of crazy talk and a lot of back and forth and a lot of that us versus them that you spoke about. I guess one last question for you. How can we best engage and apply this into our regular life in an age where, you know, the Facebook threads have just gotten nasty with the name calling and, the you know, you're a liberal, you're a conservative, you're a nut job, you're a snowflake. How can we actually take this and sensibly apply it to our lives when we're engaging with people who don't share the same beliefs as we have? By demonstrating, by demonstrating what it's like to not give up different ideas. It's, it's okay to have different ideas. It's, it's perfectly okay. And it's perfectly normal and perfectly natural. But contrast does not have to produce conflict. And so it's okay to contrast my ideas with yours without having to get into a conflict about it. How do we um, move through our lives when all this is happening around us? You know, I've had this happen to me. People have walked up to me when I get out of a car and head into the venue where I'm going to give a talk that night. I've been invited to give a lecture, you know, somewhere. I'm heading to the lecture and then a bunch of people, I mean, five or six people from a local church come up to me. They're waving signs, instrument of the devil, and, you know, you're going to hell. Don't listen to this man. I've had mm. that happen. I'm not, I'm not mm. making this up. I've actually had that happen. Mm. And I said, I said to the group of, at, at one point, I said, is, is, are you actually from a local church? Yes, you bet we are. 
We're here to warn people what's going to happen if they listen to you. I said, wonderful. Well, let me ask you a question. Is your pastor, is your minister here? Yeah, he's right over there, Reverend, Reverend Jones. I said, oh, great. Could I talk to him? So Reverend Jones comes over. I said, you know, you, you really believe what you're doing, don't you, in protesting with against me here? He said, you bet I do. I said, well, you know what? Would you be willing to come in? I, I, first of all, I want, to, I want to honor you for being so firm in your commitment. As long as you're not going to become abusive, as long as you're not going to become violent, as long as not, you're not going to become physically aggressive and unfair to me, but just walking up and down in front of the venue protesting, fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you for believing in what you believe in so much that you're willing to spend an evening out here on a kind of a chilly night and do this. I wonder if you'd be willing to come into the event with me and stand alongside me on the stage. And I promise you, I will give you equal time. I've got a 90 minute presentation to make. I'll talk 10 minutes. You talk 10 minutes. I'll talk 10 minutes. You talk 10 minutes. We'll share the stage and allow you to give. There are 1,500 people in there. We'll give you a, a, an opportunity to share your point of view so they can hear both both points of view. Would you be willing to do that? He said, are you kidding? You would do that? I said, absolutely. He said, I'm on. We're on. Let's go. We went into the auditorium and we gave the, the most extraordinary evening of, of one could have imagined. I talked for 10 minutes. He spoke for 10 minutes. I talked for 10 minutes. He spoke for 10 minutes. At the end of the evening, we had become fast friends. Wow. We had realized that there wasn't so much that separated us as we, as, as we may have thought. But we demonstrated something more powerful, that we could have divergent and different points of view without needing to verbally unkindly and cruelly attack each other. We could even give each other a handshake and a hug at the end of the evening, mm. a huge standing ovation from 1,500 people. And we demonstrated that differences do not have to produce divisions, that contrasts do not have to produce conflicts. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Now I got to try to take that home next time I'm with uh, around my family and take that to the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> you just thank them. Say, you know, say, say to your friends, say to your family, thank you. Thank you for sharing your point of view. Thank yeah. you for believing in what you believe in so strongly that you're willing to share your point of view. If we can both share our points of view, share our experience without losing the love that we inherently have for each other, without needing to call each other names or bully each other into being ashamed of the point of view that we hold, mm -hmm. can we at least agree agreeably that we disagree. That's the highest level of humanity. And I can't imagine anyone sitting around a Thanksgiving table who would disagree with that. Neil Donald Walsh, the book is called The Essential Path. If they want to pick that up, I know that they can go on Amazon, any online retailer, but if they want to connect more with you and find out more about your work, where can they find you, sir? CWG Connect. Com. Thank you again for your time and your generosity and for all the amazing insights today. This has been incredible. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. Thanks for the opportunity. A couple of takeaways for me from that interview. Number one, there are so many people after crashing down to rock bottom and living on the streets who would just tell themselves, I should be grateful for whatever is in front of me. I shouldn't strive for more. Who am I to complain? And yet within months of getting back into the workforce and rebuilding his life, Neil still felt this compelling need to answer life's bigger questions and to move into a higher purpose. 
And it just reinforces to me that we are not here to be stagnant. We're not here to play small. We are here to fully express the highest versions of ourselves. And so grateful that Neil stepped into that and that he's giving us his work today. The other thing that really stood out for me is one of the things I talk about is that basic survival instinct that is in our brain. And as I've reflected on this interview, I truly believe that the brain is programmed for survival. On some level, going to look out for our needs to get our needs met. However, what really opened up for me in this conversation was the bigger spiritual purpose that we all have, which is not to survive ourselves, but to help one another survive. And it's such a beautiful piece of advice about going out and helping meet the needs of others. In fact, one of the ways that I've tried to apply that advice into my life is I went to the grocery store, bought a bunch of food and created a box full of brown bag lunches that I took into downtown San Diego and just went out and fed the homeless. For me, that's how I felt led to show up. But I'm curious, what is it for you? How could you show up and meet someone else's needs this week? And if it's something you take action on, please let us know about it. You know, post a picture up on Instagram or make a post in our private Facebook group. We have the link for you in the show notes. But let me know how this episode has inspired you to show up differently, and I'll be happy to shout you out and brag about you on the podcast. Hey, if you're looking for some coaching or mentorship to help you get clear on your life's calling, to find your unique essential path, so to speak, I would be honored to help you. You can get more information on my summer VIP coaching programs by going to my website, creativesoulcoaching.net. In fact, I have an eight-week program designed to help you identify the one goal that is going to move your life forward the fastest and help you achieve it before the end of the summer. You can get more information on my Amplified in Eight Weeks coaching program at my website. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me this week. I hope the podcast is serving you. Be sure to share this with a friend if it does. And don't forget, it's time to turn down the volume on your negativity and turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.